Hey guys, this is Alex, and you're listening to Lunchbox Radio. So, thanks everybody for listening to Basquash. I hope everything's going up in a way that it should be now. Um, I might start promoting these episodes again to get some listeners back or more listeners, period. Um, but for those of you who listen to it, thanks a lot for listening. Um, I had some back and forthness on deciding on what I wanted to do the podcast on this week. Um, I keep, I keep batting around this idea of just straight up doing a podcast about etchy anime. Um, there's certainly some etchy stuff in lots of anime, but, um... I most want, I, I wanted to, for lack of a better term, get into the smut. <laughs> just, just start diving into, like, the dirty badness. Um, and... Besides that point, I also, I also, I, I made a commitment to a game on my Switch called Galgun 2. <laughs> and while that game, like, entertainment-wise, is weeb trash of the highest order, it's also tons of fun, and tons of, um, what's it called? And, and it's fairly challenging. Like, challenging enough where you're like, I can't just play. This game is less window dressing than I would ever imagine it to be. Um, so that kind of solidified that eventually I will do, like, a, um, episode on kind of more broadly etchy anime under the guise of some main show that's, like, borderline hentai trash. Um, because I, and Digibro, um, did a video about this uh, recently, there is something to be said for, we have this thing to say, and we've decided to say it somehow with, like, borderline porn. Whether that's an important thought that somebody's having or not, whether it's, like, we want to, like, in the case of a show, like, and this is not what, what I'm talking about this week. So it's just, like, in my brain, what I've thought about since playing a lot of Galgun and listening to that Digibro segment. Um, but in the case of something like Galgun, they, that team made a really, like, complicated, difficult on-rail shooter. So, which, if you've ever played an on-rail shooter, it's like, um, the best way I've heard Galgun described of is, as, is, um, it's like House, it's like House of the Dead, but horny. Um, the, the House of the Dead arcade cabinet. Um, and there's a lot of, like, on-rail shooters from, like, the arcade cabinet, like, 80s days, because that was an easy way to, like, guide somebody through an experience and be like, okay, we only have to build this much stuff 
because the like the player will only see that much. Um, so it provi- it provides a way for the pro for the game designer to like guide you through an experience. But in like twenty seventeen and twenty eighteen and in even twenty I wanna say like fifteen, sixteen ish most people, if they're going to play a shooter, they want something more akin to, like, um, something like Wolfenstein, something like Bioshock, all these, like, super high production value, um, open world, first person shooter games. And then you have something like Galgun come along, and it, the way it gets people to pay attention to it is it uses a kind of obscene, uh, a obscene, let's call it, take on it, and it says, what if instead of, like, shooting zombies or Nazis or something to kill them, we get you into a scenario in which you need to shoot loved, crazed teenage girls to, like, purify them or whatever. (laughs) What if, basically... What if we went all the way anime with a shooter and we made it an on-rail shooter so people could, like, have a great... So, so, pe- so people would have a good excuse of just, like, the, we, we will basically trick people into picking this game up. And then when they're playing it, they'll realize, like, holy shit. This is actually challenging and actually hard. Now, um, my first experience with this game was in was on 360. I saw the kind of now infamous, if you've never seen it, about this game, giant bomb segments of this game. I'm like, oh, that looks real weird. I think I need to check that out. And there was a demo of it on the 360 on the Japanese 360 store, and I played it. I was like, oh, this is real weird. I'll keep this in my back pocket. It's just something to do. And long story short, my Xbox red-ringed. I got a Google Chrome for the TV it was hooked up to. Later on, I got a Switch for, like, the TV in my bedroom. And And then fast forward to right around... A week before my birthday. Oh yeah, it was my birthday. It was my birthday. I'm approaching the Otaku expiration date. That's why I seem old and ranty. I'm 29 now. Let that sink in. I'm 29. I've been watching anime for almost three decades. But, um... Aside from that, I just kind of like... Was like, oh, Galgun's gonna be on the Switch? They're going at, we want everybody hard at Nintendo, aren't they? Because they would never let this on something like the Wii. Yes, I will pre-order it. And so I pre-ordered it, and I've been playing through it. But there's that. So eventually, all of you listeners will be able to look forward to me talking about just real, real rude titties at some point. In a meaningful, thoughtful way, I hope. Um... Also, because I, I don't know if anybody, if any of you guys listening, 
or gals, I don't want to discriminate, um, <laughs> have like a moment. Uh, usually it comes around for me like once a year, maybe once a season, where I'm just like, man, I want to watch some trash. And like, I want to watch something that is definitely bad. Like, definably terrible. Like, um, one time I decided to watch, uh, what's the, what's that, what's that, what's that hentai anime? Um, I decided to watch Mezzoforte, but not the porn one, just the normal one, and... No offense to the normal one, but the porn is the only thing that makes that show worth it. <laughs> because without it, I'm, I'm not endorsing like, hey, sit down and watch some porn, kids. I'm just saying, like, things like that and Kite were made because, and we're going to talk about, like, production committees and stuff in this, um, in this episode a little bit here. But things like Kite and Mezzoforte were made... Basically, so the porn, the, the hentai, the hentai scenes in it are completely separated from the story and can be taken out later. So, um, in Mezzoforte, the first porn scene is a dream sequence, and then the second porn scene is a... It's like an aside that doesn't need to be there, but because, and because of the way they wrote it, they can take those two things out, and the viewing experience of those episodes, at least, isn't changed at all. Um, but, and the same thing with Kite, like, Kite, like, sex scenes can be taken out entirely, and the... At, like, the, the story isn't interrupted at all. The story isn't dependent on those scenes and doesn't have any hard links to those scenes either. But there's a... I forget what it's called, but you can probably look it up. Um, there is a full-on series version of Mezzoforte that is even less, like... Like, what? I think someone misread the, like... ratings for this thing because people were definitely just like, oh man, it's that one with the weird dude in the vars in the pink varsity jacket. What tongue fondles that lady? Um in a clip you can find literally anywhere. Uh, without even trying real hard for a long time. So for a long time when you just went to certain websites on the internet, when illegal anime was a thing, that scene would just pop up in your face. You'd be like, oh my god. But, um, that aside, the show we're talking about this week is something on almost the completely opposite end. And that is Dimension W.
So now, Dimension W is an interesting show for a number of reasons. First off, it is a pretty recent show, having aired in the 2016 season, um, and it, having aired in the winter 2016 season. But um, the thing about it specifically was on the production staff was um, Funimation had a seat on the production board. So for those of you who don't know or who haven't sat through, not sat through, who haven't watched Shirobako because Shirobako is a really good show about the like breakneck insanity of producing anime. Um, but I don't even think it really covers this. Um, it's alluded to, I think, in things like the animation episode of Golden Boy, but I don't think that Shirobako super gets into, like, the production committees and stuff. It talks about it, I know that, but I've been a while since I've seen it, so I'm not sure, I don't remember any scenes of just, like, straight up the production committee, but I could, I'm probably wrong. I'm probably wrong. The internet can prove me wrong. Um, but basically what happens is in order to make sure that these animation studios don't take huge burdens, they team up with other people, usually future licensors and stuff like that, to be on production committees. And the, so, and the members of the production committee have a pretty large deal of say in how the show turns out. For example, and this is just for example, um, the producers, the production committee in, uh, what's it called? Uh, for Dragon Ball Z, way back in the day, is the reason Cell existed. Or so the rumor goes. Basically, Akira Toriyama brought the designs for Android 17 and 18 to the production staff and said, these are the new villains of the new arc. And this is something how it went. And they, and, and the, the production committee went like, oh, really? Just some girly man and a lady? What else he got? And eventually, he ended up, like, submitting the design for Cell, and that gets you to the Cell saga, and, like, the production committee also had a huge... The production committee in Dragon Ball Z ended up wreaking havoc and, like, dragging that thing out because it was just so popular. So, that's the bad part of production committee. The good part is what I mentioned earlier. It is that Production committees basically function as a mitigation to risk of, like, okay, we spent all this money, even, let's say somebody spends $10 million, which is not infeasible for an, for an animation. Actually, let's say someone spends, that's, that's pretty high, uh, let's say someone spends a million dollars producing an anime. And that anime tanks. Now, for a... Now, for one 
animation studio to take on a million dollars of losses would be insane. Would be not necessarily insane, but would not be great business. But for six companies and but for six companies, including that said animation studio, or in some cases multiple animation studios, to take on that risk, all of a sudden a million split four ways is 25k each studio, or split six ways, or split seven ways, all that stuff. So it gets way less expensive to essentially fuck up, to essentially put out a show that doesn't hit the way you wanted to or you expected it to. But the other thing is that when the right kinds of people are on production committees, they have, once again, say in what happens, like the earlier example of Dragon Ball Z. But, oftentimes production committees are formed when uh, people are looking to make a new show, when they don't, before they know what the project is. And in this case, in the case of Dimension W, the production committee was formed and went through and handpicked to the extent it could a manga that it thought, hey, this has great potential to appeal to Western audiences. Since uh, gone are the days when studios were just flying by the seat of their pants, talking to people, uh, not not talking to people, but um, my recording catching up, which is why it's distracting me. But, um, gone are the days when Japan was the only market that Japan cared about. These days, you know, things like Trigon have existed and have been properties for a huge amount of time. Things like Cowboy Bebop are, cla- are anime classics that were initially not super well-received in Japan at the time. Later on, sure, they were as revered as you get. But at the time of their premiere, it was just like, oh, this is kind of off. And yes, we still get plenty of things that are definitely made for Japanese audiences and have that very much in mind. But you also see a lot of attention paid to Okay, this is this is something that American fans will, will be able to latch onto. That in some cases European fans will be able to latch onto. A great example of this is Lupin the Third Part Four. Part five, Part Five is out now and is a lot of fun. But um, Part Four was aired first in Italy, and that's because a it takes place in Italy, and b Lupin has a kind of, like, European... Has always fit, but had never really been... Um, it, it, Lupin is all, almost completely devoid of, like, Japanese... Of, like, what people think of as, like, Japanese-ness, if you will. Like, the, it... They have, they certainly have moments 
of like, oh, these characters seem very Japanese, but it's not. It's kind of like Pokemon, if that makes any sense. And Pokemon is another great example of it's like the world took to that show in a way that was not normal. So Funimation went through, they picked out a mon- the manga the manga version of Dimension W, which I'm told goes in some different directions in the show. And they produced this show. And um before I get into like talking about the show itself, let's just say this up front. It it's not a bad show. It's just not a great It's just, it's not a great telling of the story, I guess is the best word for it. So, but, all that said, let's get into it. So Dimension W is essentially a story about loss and about char- and about the main character, Maboshi Kyoma, dealing with the loss of his, like, kind of only... Not sh- not only shot, but only, well, kind of only shot, at love, his college sweetheart, who he loses, essentially to technology. And basically what ha- what's happened is, in the future, a new form, a new un- unlimited form of energy is discovered in the form of a new dimension, basically. So, the way they describe it is, there's an, there's a, like, there's an x-axis, and a y-axis. And, those are both planes of reality. Like, one is physical reality, the other is time. And then, there is, Dimension W, which is just kind of like, they, they depict it as being like a diagonal axis. So, a, a way I would call, say is, um, th- there's, typically, people think, think of things as light, sound, and, um, light, sound, and... Not, but there's three perceptions of reality that most people think of. Um, well, actually, the best, the best way to put it, there's 2D reality, there's 2D, which is animation, flat, not dimensional, 3D, the real world, and to some extent like, 3D graphics and stuff like that. And then there's what I, what they called in my college class that we took about it, 4D, which is essentially time. And stand and in that class stood for animation. But here we're going to use 4D as the kind of dimension W. It's the new dimension that was kind of discovered. And... 
the way that they use that they use this power is they have these huge generators all over the world. Um, it's a little bit of a Gundam Double O situation. Like the places with these generators have a lot of power and pull, even if their people don't live in like great times. But they use these things. I forget what they're called. Um, they use these, basically these batteries, these kind of like big, you know, the big C bat, not C batteries, but um, oh, the 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 disc batteries, the kind of things they use for hearing aids. A big version of that that looks that that looks like uh, almost like a power button that can be screwed in. And what they're called is they're called coils. Um, one com but the kind of running thing here is since this is this is very much a show in the cyberpunk genre, is that these coils are produced by one company, and one company controls the power plants and controls the coils' connection to those power plants. Um. But early in his life, he basically, and you find this out kind of at the towards the tail end of the series, in one of the um, shows sloppier you like story moments. Unfortunately, uh, you find out that Kioma lost his girlfriend to this experiment that used coils to. Um, to try and build her a new body. Like, they built her a robot body, and they tried to stick a coil in it and transfer her from her human body to her new body. And she had, like, what I always refer to as mysterious anime death disease. Um, she, although, strangely, she did not have a side pony. For those of you who don't know, whenever you're watching a show and you see a woman with a side ponytail, that lady's gonna die. Not true of men, but definitely true of women. Ed's mom, Aaron's mom. Also, strangely, all moms with all dead moms, side ponies. Not exclusively, but if you're a mom with a side ponytail, you're probably going to die. Um, that's how that goes. Just, just a fun thing. Um, but, um... So he loses her to to this surgery, and as a result, he hates coils and the kind of, like, tech revolution around them, and the, the corporation, which, um, the name of which I forget, um... Um, the Tesla, the new Tesla Energy Corporation, um, he hates them because they were, they were in charge of the surgery, and he is this, he is in the most literal sense, this analog player in a digital world. However, the way he makes his money is he goes around collecting illegal coils. 
Um, because, of course, as with all controlled things, people want to make things illegally. When the iPhone first came out, everybody rushed to find a way to jailbreak it. When anime... When the internet encountered anime, everybody was like, wait, I think we can get anime illegally. Um, so the adage goes, as soon as there, as soon as there is a legal, useful thing, people will try and knock it off. The problem with the illegal coils, though, is, for whatever reason, they are not stable. And basically, they can open up a they can open up a hole to dimension W and warp people's bodies and minds into like grotesque, insane shapes. And you you see this demonstrated over and over and over again. Um, but you also see it you also see it done via the like later on scene with Mabushi's girlfriend from college with legal coils in a way that suggests that this is a risk of this, um, of this society that the society hasn't leveled with, basically. Um, as a result, Mabushi hates technology. In an era where they have robots hover cars and all of this stuff. He has a flip phone and he drives this like rad gasoline powered automobile. And the way he gets paid for his jobs are half in cash, half in gasoline. Because this is a um rocketeer situation where gasoline is insanely expensive. Um but so naturally, the first thing the show does is it sticks him with a robot, with a chirpy robot sidekick, in the name of, in the form of Mira. And Mira is basically searching for what her father meant, and searching for, um, I think she's searching for the numbered coils. And, but Mira's frame and body type are later to be, are later described to be eerily similar to Mabashi's girlfriend, um, Mayabi. Um, Mayabi, Azuma Mayabi. And she, so she has a very, she's a very similar frame in a way that is kind, that, Everyone remarks like, oh, she's the same height and the same build and has a lot of the same physical, like, things. Physical sizing as, um, as Azuma, as, as Azumaya Mayabi. I've got a cheat sheet for the characters. Give me a break. I haven't watched this thing in a while. Um, and it's later revealed that most likely, she has the robot body that did not work out for my Abby. Um, which it betrothes, um, 
Mabushi into like a weird emotional thing because at that point he had become kind of attached to Mira. Um, since they very quickly start living and working together. But the ends of, I'm sure you can tell by now, that this show has a lot of pitfalls. But the, but much like, um, Basquash, which also had a considerable amount of pitfalls, uh, it has a definite style that it, kind of goes after relentlessly and it's its own style and it, it it is it has a very cyberpunk feel and cyberpunk series aren't are certainly not rare in anime there's more there's more than a handful of them there's way more than a handful of them but the periods of time between so, like full-on cyberpunk series is kind of wide. So, like, it, especially if you're looking for something outside of like Ghost in the Shell territory, basically Ghost in the Shell or um now Psychopath. Psychopath seems to find something to do every couple of years at least. Um, for when it, Psychopath was airing, it aired for two full seasons and a movie. So there were like three solid years of just like, oh, there's more Psychopath out. Let's go watch more Psychopath. Um, and I know that they're, they have novels out about uh, Kogami specifically, which I would not, I would imagine they could not help themselves but turn into anime at some point. Um, because that that would just kind of print money in a weird way. Because um, that show is very popular. Um, for all different kinds of reasons. But this show, from the opening scene, from, from, from the opening credits, it's like, oozes a kind of like fun and high energy, and, like, attitude that many other shows kind of can't, even with their opening, where it's supposed to be, like, everything they they can put into it can't get a handle around. And that's largely because they have this excellent, excellent, excellent opening, that starts with all the characters flashing on screen, and then they have one of those, like, triptic switch things with all of their faces, and then they have Maboshi just, like, jamming out, dancing to, tech, to like, the theme song. And it's just... It, it's one of the better... Probably not... I mean, I'm not going to throw this to what's in an OP from Jeff, which if you really like anime OPs, or anime in general, definitely go check out his show. Um, but it is one of the better put together OPs with like, in terms of like music, masters, visuals, in a really expert like way. Yeah, it, it is very well directed to like 
put your brain in a certain headspace. I'm actually going to use that OP. I actually probably use that OP for the opening segment of this podcast as well. They'll use the ending. The ending, I don't necessarily remember as much, but that it, that may is probably just because the opening credits are, of the show are excellent. Excellent, excellent. Music, m- music-wise, scene-wise, composition-wise, whoever did this, whoever directed the OP, which many times is a different director from the main series director, and sometimes m- maybe even a different animation team. Whoever did that OP, like, they knew what the fuck they were doing. Now, that said, and this... I don't, I don't understand this, and actually, I do totally understand this because I know enough about music licensing that maybe I shouldn't know that much because it's taking up too much brain space. But a a problem Funimation has had in the past is they will get a show. And that show will have a lot of style and charisma and, like, great music. Great music that can sell that show in a motherfucking second. Specifically, I'm talking about Eden of the East. Also, Speedgrapher. Both shows, I think, are on Funimation right now. That are in the wheelhouse of Funimation right now. Now, Speedgrapher, if you've seen the opening of that, is actually done to Girls on Film. I think that's a David Bowie song. But anyway, that ver- the Girls on Film version of the Speedgrapher opening is fucking incredible. <laughs> because of the like narrative parts, the narrative things that relates to in that show... And the just the, the timing. There are certain moments in the opening that seem mistimed with the music that they used for the opening, which I think is like a credit creditless like techno thing. But with the girls on film opening, like stuff lines up just perfectly, and then misaligns again in a way that is very purposeful and really adept. And the per- and the animation and the music were blended really well by somebody who understands like time and timing and all of that stuff, and it's really excellent. Now the Eden of the East opening is I forget what the name of the song is, but it's recorded by I shit you not, Incubus. Now, because of music licensing bullshit, and because music licensing gets even worse when you're talking about Japanese music licensors, Funimation could not get the rights to these songs. For, I'm assuming, digital broadcast in some variation of perpetuity. Um... 
Because many of these shows have been with Funimation for many, many years at this point. Um, but the problem is that those openings are so excellently done because of the music. And in Speed Graffer's case, if you've never seen the Girls on Film opening, your life is enriched once you see it. You're like, oh my god, that's excellent. I only ever want to see that. But you know, you don't realize that until you see it. The opening for Eden of the East is a lot different. Because what they did is they took this like very atmospheric and very carefully timed opening for Eden of the East and they put a kind of generic J-pop idol to it. And if you know anything about Eden of the East, you know eventually that show goes weirdly international. Actually, that show goes weirdly international right off the bat in a way that's super... Um, in a way that's super important and matters a lot. And they tie into the story after... in, like, no time. So... To take the opening that was, I don't, I don't think, actually I think that uh, they had Incubus write that, write that, write their opening song for that. To take the opening that was written for that show out of it is like insane. But they came to that show after the fact and they wanted to license it. Because it was ultra popular, I get it. Whatever. Moving on. It, it it is hard to ask everybody to be as awesome as the production staff, as the licensing and production staff for the dub of Yu Yu Hakusho. And once, if there is a deeply, deeply amazing like way to deal with opening credit songs in an American version of an anime, it is the Yu Yu Hakusho opening credits. It is... That thing, that song lives in your heart whether you want it to or not. <laughs> um, there's also things like Cowboy Bebop, where if, you're, where if you don't get the music, you fucked up. If you don't get the music for Cowboy Bebop, there's no point to that show. Um, and it would be nice if other shows were treated like that because these shows are made as a whole and it's important to keep the whole going forward because then you have the music contextualizes the opening credits in the right way. Dimension W has an incredible opening. But. And it, and my butt here isn't a huge one. Well, it is kind of a huge one. I like big butts. Um, but they only got the rights for the Dimension W opening for the subtitled version. 
So if you go on Funimation right now and you go to watch Dimension W, you basically end up having to make two choices. Either I'm going to watch this thing completely dubbed, which is a much easier way to watch this show because it has some really technical, like, space physics and shit that it wants, like, it has some techno babble it wants, or it wants you to be interested in the techno babble it's throwing at you. And if you can watch that in English, that's a lot easier. It was a lot easier for me. But, in the dub version, they just cold open with a white, with a title card with the logo on a white background, and they go into the show. Only here's the thing. I, I, I'm, I'm fine with that. If, once again, I hadn't seen the incredible opening. And if you're going to get a show, and if you're going to get a show made, you better damn well be able to go to, to the music licensors at the end and say, we paid to have this show made. We get all the rights to everything. Or we block this show's release and we don't hold... We, if you're not going to hold up... The way I would handle it is I would say, if you're not going to hold up your end of the bargain, give us the best version of the show available for all versions, then why should we... Why should we... Um, license this show in our region. And, you know, the music licensors and the creators and the actual studio who created the show are free to be forced to take it to some other licensor. That's fine. The world is the world. It, they could not be because of some sort of contract, but that's how that goes. But for these shows to really make their sticking point, they need to have all the parts. I know this is a big, drawn-out thing to say. Give me the original opening for the dub. I, I, I don't care what the, like, political bullshit around, like, oh, we can't get this dub. Just do it. Just do it. I know this was a big, long rant about that. Although, if, you're listening, if you've been listening to this show for a while, you know that's kind of what I do. I get lost in this shit. But, these... I can't stress this enough. The opening to Dimension W, whatever you think of the show, is really well done. It is, it's unlike anything else I've ever seen, and I've seen a lot of shit. So... If you're going to watch this show and you want to watch it dubbed, go right ahead. It, so once again, lots of techno babble that happens. But if you're going to, but if you're going to watch this show, at the very least, go look up on YouTube or click on the, on click on the subtitled version of it to watch the opening because the opening is drop dead goddamn amazing. On every level. Now, that said, once again, the show... It was doing okay until about episode 5, and then it 
kind of dropped off. It introduced a bunch of characters it didn't know what to really do with. It ran off in some odd angles. It has a weird male gaze on Mira because they keep like, oh, here's Mira's ass for this entire shot. Or we're just going to leer at the side of Mira's boob. Um, but it does it does have one of the better moments of just like Mabushi basically get basically gives Mira a trailer for her to live in because he walks in on her in the bathroom. And she was just like, Can you please leave? Instead of just kicking him in the face. And he's like, I'm sorry. And then he realizes, oh, I have a, like, teenage girl living with me. Here. Here's this insane, like, 1950s trailer. It's yours. Make it yours. So this doesn't happen again. And, and like, that would be fine if that was the only thing. But they, they do have, like, one shot, an episode of just lingering, like, Isn't this robot lady sexy? And there's nothing wrong with that. Once again, I'm thinking about doing an episode all about that stuff, but it's 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 out of place in a way that is like that's not what this show is about. What the what do you want this show to be about that? Because I'm cool with that. But this is like an incomplete thought that just boils up every once in a while. Like, we needed some sexy figure to sell this robot lady. Which, coincidentally, they do have. You can go out and you can buy sexy figures of this robot lady. Um, but the... And the story, like I said, it... It clips along, clips along, clips along. It's not by far the worst story in anime. But it's... It doesn't stick the landing completely. Because it doesn't it doesn't give you enough time to care about what becomes the main plot of the show, which is Mabushi dealing with the fact that he lost someone in the past and he can't get over it. But they don't They do they do the reverse of we're going to spend an episode on this person to kill them. Um, which is what I like to call, we want you to feel bad when this person dies. So now we're going to introduce them and make them likable immediately. So when they die, you care. But in this case, the person we're supposed to care about being dead is already dead. So... The flashback episode they have about her, about their relationship, at like blossoming and happening, and then her dying, is a ultra compressed over I think like one episode late in the show, so it doesn't have the time to breathe. Where you're like, wait, why does this dude give a shit about this girl this hard? Because she is. Like, they met five days ago. 
or whatever. Like, it, it's like, oh, I just met you. Now you're going into surgery for mysterious anime disease. I love you. Which is not insanely irrational. Like, if you had a girlfriend for three days and she had a heart attack and was in the hospital, you'd be very worried. But you'd be less worried than what they tried to make it seem like, like they've been together for, like, years, or at the very least, months. And put on top of that the fact that she is very clearly dead in the, like, actual timeline of the show. So you're, you're watching this compressed thing that starts and wraps, this compressed story that starts and wraps up all in the space of, I think, maybe one or two episodes, and you're asked to care about these, to care about these, this relationship that you are introduced to pretty quickly. And now you can make arguments, it's like, that's pretty realistic, is that you're, fi you're finding out this at this, around the same time Mira's finding out and that's a realistic thing, and Maboshi as a character is kind of a puzzle box of a person. But it it doesn't it doesn't make me feel for the for his for his quote unquote former girlfriend, my Abby. It just makes me feel like someone's trying to ham handedly manipulate me, the viewer, into caring about this so they can get to their end goal of this, like, emotional climax fight. Um, the character who's handled much more depthly is Loser, who is essentially a father trying to care for his daughter after the loss of his wife, their mother, and he need, but he needs the numbered coils to do it. I forget exactly why. But what they do with him is they stretch that out across most of the series, so you do completely understand. Like, oh, this guy really cares about his kid. That's what he's doing this for. He's just a robot. He's just a badass robot dad. Who wants to, like, take care of his kid and, like, be a good robot dad. Um, but in terms of the main character, Mabuchi, they just don't, they, they don't give you enough to ground him, but they do give you, gives you the idea that, like, they, they knew what they were doing when they started, and then they, but they just didn't, they Gave him the right quirks, but didn't make use of them well. So, like, they gave him the quirk of, like, oh, he hates coils, he uses a foot phone, he drives a gasoline-powered car, he uses these, he uses these, like, basically, like, um, acupuncture send-on needles, like, from, like, what with from Naruto and whatnot, that are electrified to, like, stab illegal coils and shut them down and shut down robots and all this stuff. And they set all of that up to create this, once again, puzzle box of a character, but then 
they solve the puzzle for you too quickly. And it, do it doesn't feel like you're solving the puzzle along with it. It feels like... It, it feels like in the... It feels like it's a video game and the hints come just a little before you would have solved it yourself. So therefore it's constantly ruining the like puzzle solving aspect of that game. Does that make any sense? Um, but like I said, it has a style. Um, it has like the cyberpunk mythos going for it. And has this like it has this confidence that I appreciate. It has strangely even more confidence than a show like Basquash. That said, my name has been Alex, and you've been listening to One Park Radio, and I will talk to you next time. Yeah!